That's hot. Could you turn the volume down just a little bit with it being behind me? It sounds like I'm shouting. I really don't want to shout this morning. Uh, with the Hollywood writers' strike in the fall, a lot of television shows weren't on, and uh, Deborah and I started watching a show that she's watched before. I hadn't watched it, uh, Quantum Leap, time travel show. And recently, while we were traveling to Florida, we missed the season finale, but it was recorded. And it was actually a two-parter, and then rather than it just being a two-hour long, it was two one-hour segments. One was numbered 12, and the other was numbered 13. Well, when we had the time to watch those, I was, I pulled it up. Deborah was doing something else, getting ready for us to watch, and inadvertently hit number 13 instead of number 12. And so we jumped into the story line at a later point and kept thinking we've we've missed something and Deborah said something about it and I was confident I'd hit the right one uh, I kept thinking they'll do this you know deal where they start in and then they go back and they catch you up but about 15 minutes in it was obvious that they weren't going back and so Deborah pulled up on her phone the description and realized I was on segment 13, not 12. So we stopped it, went back to 12, and watched the storyline develop, knowing where it was headed. Have you ever found yourself wishing you knew what was coming So maybe you could respond differently or better. I mean, the whole storyline behind this show is certain actions in the past could result in a butterfly effect where things hopefully improve rather than what had happened without this shift. Today's reading from the Gospels for this Lenten season is from Mark chapter 8. And we have a slide if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles. It'll be verses 31 through 38. If we could go to the next slide, uh, that reading. Uh, Jesus is with the twelve. He's asked them who he is, and Peter has rightly acknowledged him to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's at that moment that Jesus gives them a picture of what's coming. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed 
and after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Will you pray with me? Father God, we confess to you that these words are deeply challenging. For your son to say that we have to be wide open to losing our lives. We pride ourselves in our self-sufficiency as a culture. We're urged to be individualistic. We're shaped to be selfish. And giving up for the sake of others, giving up for the sake of your glory, is a tall order, we confess. And Father, at times we acknowledge that we cluck our tongues at Peter. And think, how could you confess that he's the Messiah and then rebuke him in the same setting? Forgive our blindness when we do the same in our own lives. Help us to examine our own hearts. And recognize our absolute, utter need to depend on your amazing grace. 
In Jesus I pray. Amen. Seeing the end from the beginning isn't necessarily an easy thing. Jesus gives the disciples a pretty clear picture of where things are headed. There's a cross. A cross for every one of us. Around the room today, there are these artistic presentations of the stations of the cross. If you go up to each one, you'll notice there's a real, 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 real tiny print at the bottom. And that's a passage of Scripture. Uh, A part of the reflection of the artist on the meaning of these 12 stations of the cross. The last hours of Jesus' life before His crucifixion. Different scenes are represented. To push us to urge us, to lead us, to guide us, whatever word we don't find quite so resentful personally. To really ponder the meaning of the cross. Not just in the cosmic sense, but in our personal self-evaluation kind of sense. And while different items appear, the one unifying part of each of these is there's a cross represented. The crossbar is an interesting item in some of these. Jesus says... I'm going to undergo great suffering. I'm going to be rejected by the spiritual leaders of Israel. I'm going to be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus... Prediction doesn't fit with Peter's vision of what the Messiah ought to experience. And he takes Jesus aside and tries to get him to change this way forward. And Jesus speaks to the one behind the thoughts of Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking the thoughts 
from the Father. You're thinking these thoughts, these thoughts from the world. Death, defeat, rejection. Those are not the ways forward. Power, dominance, overturning. Those are the ways of the world. Next slide, please. I'll speak autobiographically. Too often, I'm more like Peter than I wish I was. Than I'm comfortable acknowledging. But Jesus, you don't mean that. I have to give up what? Why would that be the best way forward? Several years ago when John and Larissa had just come to be a part of our Stone River family, somebody on Facebook posted a question of, it may have been John, what's the best book? I think maybe asking Ben, uh, Austin, that the most impactful book you've read. And different ones responded And I'm drawing a blank on the name of the book. The Jesus Style. Thank you, John, for having a younger memory (laughs) than mine. This passage in Philippians 2 play a huge part in that book. Jesus takes on the role of a servant. As the way to be a blessing to others. And I have to admit, when I purchased that book in the 80s, and started reading it. It was a full-on head clash between significant parts of my biblical theological training of the role of a preacher. The function of pastoral ministry. How do you lead like Jesus? Brother, there's a, there are some extra chairs in that classroom. The door right in front of you. 
So your whole family can sit together if you'd like. You could pull them out or some of us can spread out a little bit or move, move a little bit, not spread out. That, that'll be counterproductive. Jesus' style of leadership is countercultural. And yet it made him incredibly popular among people on the fringes, among the people that the Jewish leaders look down on. And his path to the cross is where his, the, the depths of that being his reality. It, it's not a, I'll fake you out it's not a maneuver. It's his reality. Here in Mark 8. He will not allow any alternative way forward to distract him. And he says, not just to the disciples, the, the apostles, the special chosen ones, he, he calls the crowd for this part of the conversation, and he uses that word, anyone, So it applies to us as readers today. Anyone would come after me. He must deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. If being a follower of Jesus is your way to get the limelight, you're not following Jesus. If following Jesus is your technique for gaining a following, you're not following Jesus. Following Jesus entails a cross. Today, we have golden crosses that are beautiful, that are expensive, that are delicate.
Yes, we have musical background. Somebody know, doesn't know whose, clock, whose bag it is, whose phone it is. Hannah's in the room, so she's not here. <laughs> Thank you. I was afraid it was my hearing aids and nobody else was hearing it. Uh, tried to ignore it, but it was obvious it wasn't going off. So, And others were responding, so I realized. Distractions are multitudinous. Can be. Can we go to the next slide? As I read this passage, as I reflected on some of the things that have been going on, um, the, the word foreshadowing just sort of jumped out at me. And that's what uh, movie writers often use as a technique. They'll, they'll give you a foreshadowing, a, a piece of the storyline ahead of time, but then they'll go back. And my opening slide had just the cross on the floor here. And this one is an artist's presentation of the idea that the young Jesus with Joseph the carpenter, uh, there's the foreshadowing of the cross. And sometimes in presentations, portrayals, there will be young Jesus in the woodworking shop hammering nails into a couple of pieces of wood. And there's this moment of pause. Uh, we don't know that those kinds of Premonitions, the word that might be used, were present. But we know by this moment in Mark 8 that Jesus is crystal clear about what's coming. Uh, we worked through Mark's gospel for a, a season in our adult Sunday school class, and, and Greg did a wonderful job in facilitating that. Uh, Mark's gospel is the shortest. Many biblical scholars believe it's the, the earliest. We don't know that absolutely. There's some wrangling that goes on about which one preceded the others. And Mark's gospel is interesting in that uh, you don't get the birth narrative. You don't get the going back to the beginning narrative that you find in John's gospel He's full-grown man when he appears in Mark, and he's launching out into his ministry very, very quickly. And it's short, 16 chapters in our English Bibles. Half of those chapters deal with the last week of his life. And they're focused on the theme that's introduced here in Mark 8. There's a cross coming. 
And some students of Mark believe that Mark's gospel was an intentional reflection on the Isaiah 53 suffering servant passage. And that everything is pointing to how the Messiah could follow a path that was so unanticipated. So radically different. Lent is a time, a season of intentionally choosing to forego some pleasure for the 40 days leading up to the resurrection of Easter. There's no biblical authority pushing for that to be the way forward. And so many Protestant and evangelicals, uh, many uh, have rejected it. But in light of Jesus' statement here in Mark 8, I would say that we need seasons of introspection. Some call it inner work. What's, what's motivating me? What's, what's pushing me forward? What, what am I really focused on? In going without coffee or your favorite online game or listening to your tunes on the way to school And using that time instead to pay attention to yourself. Deborah and I fast on Wednesdays, breakfast and lunch. And it's amazing what going out without a couple of meals that you're used to having every other day of the week can do. There have been times, I must honestly confess, when all I thought about was how good dinner was going to taste. When five o'clock alarm starts playing on Deborah's phone, and that's the cue that we can eat. We usually go to Five Guys and have a burger and a little fry that's not little at all. If you've never been to Five Guys, don't order a giant fry. Don't order a medium fry. Order a little fry. 
And you're going to get more than you can eat, more than the two of us can eat. Um, so many, you've got to be pretty quick or they're going to get soggy before you get done. Literally. They're not inexpensive at all. But that's not where my thinking really ought to be when I'm fasting. Uh, some of my friends who have been introduced to the idea of fasting with regular purposes just really aren't too sure. Well, they're, they're quite sure that's just wrong-headed. It's not, it's not going to be helpful. And with those, I usually say, have you ever stayed up all night to finish a research paper? Have you ever skipped breakfast to go do something that you really wanted to do? Have you ever stayed out on the lake fishing because they were actually biting that day? You weren't casting, you were fishing and missed a meal. And yet the focus isn't on some exciting experience as much as what, what's, what's going on inside me. And I think there are probably some of us who've done just enough of that that we avoid it, we stay away from it because we're afraid we're going to find some things in there that we really don't like. And we'd just as soon not know they were there. And if that's your fear, I want to share uh, a post that Megan, she's in Tullahoma hearing her brother preach, who's in from, the one from Dallas, Dallas. okay. I didn't know if it's Texas or, or uh, Ghana, uh, but I figured it was probably Dallas. Uh, but she and Pat have been reading the Lenten post from Biola University. And they're, they're following Paul more so than the liturgical schedule. Um, but this morning, I, trying to anticipate, trying to prepare, since I knew some were reading those, I thought, well, I'll go to their schedule and I'll pull it up earlier in the week and I can reflect on it and maybe it'll be valuable. And no, they don't give them to you ahead of time. I was going to have to get up really early this morning if I was going to incorporate that, but I noticed Megan posted a section that I want to leave with you in my clothes. I don't know for sure that the writer is a, a, a mother, but I suspect a lady, maybe a father. I'm in a refining season where I'm struggling through new depths of my own brokenness and acceptance that God's love is enough. Amidst this struggle, I walked in on my daughter, crying on my bed and loudly proclaiming, I've failed, she sobbed and tentatively put forth a piece of paper as evidence. This parent glanced at the B on her test and was tempted to launch into an exegesis about what the word fail meant. 
But the depth of her daughter's anguish gave her pause. Instead, I held her as she sobbed, and in that moment, the only thing I said was in a whisper as I stroked her curly hair, I'm so glad you failed. It gives me a chance to say my love for you is not found in your success or achievements. She looked up at me a bit like a dragonfly exploring a garden, tears running down her cheeks, her eyes wide with discovery. Really? She responded. God's love, like the eyes of a dragonfly, leads us to deeper beauty in His grace than previously experienced or even imagined. The message of Paul from Ephesians 2 and Romans 5 is to keep experiencing God's grace anew, whether you're just discovering it or you've gazed on it for a lifetime. This Grace is rooted in His love and found in the places where good intentions fail. Its vastness can be explored in the gardens of our souls when we realize that there's more of us to be loved and more grace to experience than we imagined. And then Megan Asked, isn't grace amazingly beautiful? God loves you. You're not what you have, not what you do, not what others say about you. You are beloved sons and daughters of the King. May we be reminded of this as we meet with the body of Christ that gathers all around the world today. And I say amen. Our inner work that reveals those flaws and those broken places that still exist is intended to remind us of God's amazing grace. Of the high price, the ultimate price that Jesus paid. the ongoing work of the Spirit to produce increasing measures of holiness within us. Bumper stickers are never going to be theologically deep. They might be provocative. Some of them, I'm convinced, are radically wrong, and others are on the hint of something. This meme that goes around from time to time, God loves you just the way you are, is a partial truth. So other, others have attached, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. 
And yet, some of us who come up out of performance-based backgrounds, where we're judged based on what we do and don't, what we get right and what we don't get wrong, are always afraid there's a hook attached there. Sort of like that passage in James this morning from James 3 about the stricter judgment. Looking honestly at your motives, at your current set of failures, when it turns your heart to God, is not a bad thing. Don't stay away from spiritual disciplines. that are going to be hard. Because I'm convinced if the Holy Spirit is pushing you, nudging, urging you toward those, some of the time it's because He knows what's coming next in your life. And He wants you to use this as an opportunity to be at a better place to face what's coming next. 25 years or so, longer than some of you have been alive, there was a series of Sunday school classes done here in this very room on, I think the, the, the title for the whole series was Dealing with Aging Parents. My brother Mark helped shape some of the planning for that and invited some specialists in the area uh, to address some of the big issues that come up, legal issues, healthcare issues, difficult decisions. And only mention that experience because there was a particular lady here who was very joyful and outgoing and positive and a lot of fun to be around who found that series offensive and uh, wrong-headed. And she got her husband to share that with the shepherds. And we kept on with the class, not to be ornery. Within three months, her mother had died. And in the next three months, she put her father in the nursing home because of his declining health. And within six months, he was dead. And she spent a couple of years in a very dark place. Thinking about the cross is not an easy thing. Taking up a cross is not an easy thing. 
It doesn't mean we've got to be grim and sour and dour all the time. I'm not saying that. Even though I lean toward the melancholy side of the scale in general. Some of you say, you're way beyond that, John. Maybe you've not given up anything. And you're still considering it. We'll be okay if you go two weeks after Easter. It's a personal thing. It's not a performance thing. But whatever you do or choose to give up, try to focus as much of your time as you can on what does God want me to see in myself that He would love to change and focus on His character as the one who can bring beauty out of ashes. Where our greatest disappointments don't persist into the rest of our lives. Will you pray with me? Praise team, if you want to come on up while we're praying. Father God, we give you glory and praise that your grace is bigger. That, that you are loving and pursuing and that you're able to bring transformation and breakthrough, wholeness. Forgive us when we make our paths primarily about ourselves and we focus more on what we're giving up than what we might gain. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Mold us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus. Men and women who are willing to take up our cross and follow hard after him. In his name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.